0: So, how you guys doing? Awake. Majority of us have a pulse. This is good. Keep that going. So, summertime. Normally, not my favorite part of the year. Um, it's kind of a rough season for people who wear as much black as I do. But, you know, it's this one's been cool. Get to, you know, catch up on a lot of reading, spend a lot of time with folks, and take a lot of trips, at least compared to what I normally do, which is, you know, stay here. But, uh A dozen of us scummers here went up to Bozeman, Montana two, three weeks ago. That's where Jesse and Jesse lived and worked for a while. And uh, we were up there for a biblical counseling conference, which gave me a lot of really cool stuff to think about, by the way. And on the way up, Meg and I and Steve and Tina, we all decided we'd drive through Yellowstone and see Old Faithful. Um, We actually (laughs) missed the geyser going off by about three minutes, but we still saw faithful i don't know we saw the it's a hole and apparently things come out of it but i had to trust other people to tell me that but still i'm glad we went i mean have you guys ever been there anybody a couple few okay so the famous geyser is out there in this big clearing inside this forest that just goes for days and probably i don't know fifteen hundred yards from the geyser there's this lodge It's this really big, ornate, very expensive-looking, all-hardwood lodge, very prestigious, also compliments of the government, uh, where you can spend an hour in the gift shop buying cutesy novelty t-shirts while you wait for Old Faithful to fire off again. I didn't. They didn't come in black. So apparently the reason that Yellowstone has all these geysers and hot springs and such, I didn't know this, is because beneath Yellowstone there's this huge supervolcano that if and eventually when it does go off is going to take out a pretty significant chunk of the United States. <laughs> the more you know. So imagine that you're there when it starts. You're there doing what every good American tourist does and snapping selfies in front of the geyser because that's what natural history means. And the seam in the ground rips open. And all of a sudden there's this steaming hot divide Now, between the lodge and the parking lot, and it's running right between your feet. What do you do? So, I mean, you're going to move. Yes, we've we've got that part. People are flammable. You don't want to be. So you're going to move, but in what direction? You can hear the voice of a man trying to direct people to the parking lot so that you and he can drive away to safety, but you look past him and you see that the road out of Yellowstone is going through forest that has now caught flame. Doesn't look like a place I wanna put my trust in. (laughs) Forget that guy. So, you do, you and everybody else, does what you normally do when there's some kind of disaster. You run for shelter from the fire inside the lodge, right next to that growing rift in the ground. At least I will have fire extinguishers. So, one day, when archeologists recover your bones, they will refer to this as a very bad idea you trapped yourself by running for what seemed like something that you could put your trust in when really the only safety was in the other direction getting in your tiny aluminum vehicle and driving out through this deep forest hellscape filling with fire from the very depths of the earth that you'd probably say in the moment does not seem like a path i want to trust but the guy trying to bring you along at the front gate through the parking lot he was right It's that path alone that would have actually saved you. When we're scared, what are we gonna put our trust in? The same thing that everybody else does, the flimsy man-made shelters that we can build? Or are we gonna trust in the God that's big enough to save us from catastrophes as big as a volcano or as small as the utility bills? So I want these words of mine to mean something, and they're going to be completely worthless unless the Holy Spirit is working on both ends of this, me and you. So let's take a minute to pray before we go any further. Jesus, thank you for your words, your example. Thank you for being the way. Thank you for leading us to the only real security. Thank you for being someone that we can trust. Please help us to do that tonight. Help us to make first steps or continued steps toward you. And uh, please help me facilitate that however is best. If you want me to go off notes, let it happen. Um, We love you. Amen. So uh, the scripture that we'll be learning from tonight is going to be in Luke 12, starting with verse 13. This is a pretty long passage, so if you've got a physical Bible with you, it's probably going to be helpful. I think we got some back on the storage by the ramp. And if not, obviously, it'll be up on the screen, too. So verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Does this sound at all familiar from our time in Luke? Lord, don't you care that my sister Mary has left me to do all the work? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha. But this was a little bit different. Um, it was pretty common for rabbis to be called on to settle conflicts about inheritance law. This guy has what seems to be a legitimate complaint, right? And yet, verse 14, Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. (laughs) First world problem, right there in the middle of the third world. This text points out that he is a rich man, which by definition means he has significantly more than he needs, and more than most of his neighbors do, by comparison. And this poor rich man doesn't have enough space to store everything. So I don't know what a solution maybe be to do what John the Baptist taught, give away the extra things that you don't need, maybe. But instead, verse 18, Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be, Jesus says, with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. So here's the one and exactly one reason why I'm glad my assignment for this week was to look at two sections of Luke instead of the usual one. Um, Everything from the start to this point right here, that's the problem. Everything from here to the end is the solution. If you've ever studied the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, and do that. It's my favorite part of the Bible. It's real good stuff. The next section will sound very familiar. Then Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. So, hold up. So the first half of this is about greed, right? So why are we now, all of a sudden, talking about worrying over getting our basic needs met? Jesus and Luke, however, insert that all-important word, therefore, between them. What they're saying is these two subjects are really one subject, so let's see why. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. They don't have day jobs, in other words. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. Um, If you're new to the whole Judeo-Christian thing, that's King Solomon of Israel back in the day. Very rich, very stylish guy. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. It's significant that Jesus uses the phrase, set your heart on what you worry about, rather than something more generic like, think about it. We'll come back to that later. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. The kingdom Jesus is referring to, it's probably the most frequent topic he ever talked about. It's the kingdom of God, and it is not like other kingdoms. It's not so much a place as a way of being. It has its own culture of serving God and taking care of each other as a family. It's built on love, truth, and vulnerability, putting others before ourselves. And every day, one life at a time, it is changing this world that we live in for the better. In heaven, this is being lived out perfectly. Down here, we're trying. With God's help, we're choosing into a way of life that takes the selfishness that's killing us all and puts it to death so that we can really begin to live. We're finding a life of meaning that is bigger than ourselves, and it is the most beautiful thing that I have ever known. So what's the connection here between these two sections? In the first one, we've got a guy with with major greed issues, and disciples with anxiety issues. Filthy rich cereal barren, bird seed and flower fashion. If I can suggest a connection, it's this. I think we're greedy because we worry. Ever seen Gone with the Wind? Or, God forbid, read the entire book? Um, <laughs> watch out, here comes your trendy pop culture reference in a sermon. This week, straight from 1939 who watches TV not this guy so Scarlett O'Hara right goes through some rough times financially and at one point in her life she's barely surviving and she says that famous quote I'll never be hungry again if I have to lie steal cheat or kill as God is my witness I'll never be hungry again oh melodrama or a little bit closer to home you ever met somebody who lived through the Great Depression but they lost something there that can't be measured in money I have He he died when I was younger, and I helped clean out his house for an estate sale. And so we're going through, and we just keep finding all these cobweb-covered piles of odds and ends that might have been useful, if not, you know, just being stashed up like that. And as we searched more, we started finding these bundles of money, large bills just stashed away in plastic bags in the back of the silverware drawer, in the top of closets, Uh, balled up inside socks and hidden inside holes cut in the mattress. This is a man who didn't trust the banks, and he also didn't trust that he would be safe unless he could stockpile all that money. And when he died, it was still there, just collecting dust. The problem with worry, greed, and fear is that they're all ways of trusting ourselves instead of trusting God. A guy named R.H. Mounts wrote, Worry is practical atheism. I mean, think about it. If I'm worrying about getting my needs met, I'm saying, I don't truly trust God to provide, so I'll have to. I'll have to work hard enough, save enough, and be stingy enough with what I have that I know I'll be taken care of because ain't nobody else going to do it. My head and my heart, they, they go there sometimes, just like yours does. I remember about two years ago when rent and bills and you know, food costs and everything were starting to creep past the amount that Meg and I made every month. And so I did the math. You can tell it's a dire situation if I'm doing math. And found out that within a year, our accounts were gonna hit zero. And I freaked out. Jumped into survival mode. I started looking through our budget and how we spent our money and thinking, okay, so uh, how can we fix this? What can I cut? Uh, I started, I just started going to the Jesse's potluck and I know that's, that's good for my soul and all, but you know, it's, it's a few dollars a week that I spend on food there and that'll add up. So I can probably cut that. And, and I mean, God will probably understand if I, if I cut back on how much I'm giving away and I was like, stop, (laughs) what are you doing right now? And the answer was, I was putting my trust in myself. I wasn't running to God to provide. I was running away from God toward my pathetic little attempts at shelter and safety as if those were more trustworthy than the God who made the entire universe and keeps it running. We get this idea, right, that there's such a thing as non-spiritual moments. That unless there's some bizarre, heaven-sent coincidence happening or God is doing a visible miracle and suspending the laws of physics, unless it's that, the moment that we're in, that doesn't have anything to do with our soul and the hundred times a day that we think that we're missing it there is no such thing as a non-spiritual moment beneath the surface every single situation of stress or fear or worry is a chance to lean more into trusting God or more into trusting ourselves every moment of every day, you are taking another step and it's either toward God or away. The man in Jesus' parable, he stood at the end of a path a million small steps in the direction toward trusting his own security. For him and for us most of the time, the decisions don't come like the roar of an erupting super volcano. They, They slip in quietly, as quiet as the still small voice of God offering us a hand that we'll either take or we won't. It's so hard to hear over the noise of our everyday material world. The noise in the rich man's head and heart, it came from his harvest, from his business, and I think that's the way it is for most of us. Holding down a day job, paying rent, making sure we have money in the bank. This takes up a lot of our time and thought, and we say to ourselves, well, yeah, but how am I going to keep up with all my tasks? And once I get the money, how am I going to spend my money? How am I, me, my? According to a commentary I read um, in the original Greek of this uh, passage, the rich man's tiny little dialogue, it's like three verses, I think, we see I, me, or my show up about a dozen times. Turning his thoughts back to himself, that generates a lot of noise. It's like, you know, turning monitors towards speakers you know all you can hear is you just the feedback of our selfish lives and it drowned out any thought of God or the poor and needy that God cares so much about he became trapped in a cage of self-focused worry a cage that he thought was a shelter kinda like that man-made lodge inside Yellowstone his secure retirement seemed safe seems trustworthy, but it's not. In verse 20, the man hears his death sentence, and he learns that not only has he failed to keep himself physically safe, he's also put himself in a much bigger kind of danger he wasn't even thinking about, losing his soul, losing his very self. He was running from the fire when he should have been driving through the fire, going along with the one who can direct us to safety from the much bigger danger growing up right beneath us. So let's look at the problem that we all face. Let's examine some ways that we we trust in our own financial security instead of trusting in God. We're going to have some of those up on the wall. So the first one, hoarding what we have. I'm guilty of this. See, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus tells us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, as in enough bread to get us through the end of the day, after which point we'll ask again. We see this most clearly back in Exodus 16 where God fed the Israelites for 40 years by raining down this really bizarre, vaguely bread-like stuff called manna every day. And he told them, gather as much as you need for that one day and no more. When they didn't trust that they'd be all right without hoarding their stuff, it rotted full of maggots. But when they trusted God enough to obey and just take enough and trust him for the rest... They never went hungry. I'm jealous. You know, not, not the whole wandering about in the desert for 40 years, eating I don't even know what it is. Um, I don't like the summer. It's always the summer in the desert. But if the intimate trust they learned, that's what I'm jealous about. The trust they got is they chose into depending on God's love and provision instead of their own man-made security. I want that. And I'm only going to get it by not trusting in my ability to stockpile. And by not limiting my giving out of fear. Generosity toward those in need, voluntary redistribution. This is all over the Old and New Testaments. When we give God and the rest of his family our unwanted leftovers, what we're telling him is, I get the first cut because I trust my own money management more than I trust you to take care of me. Are you guys like me? I mean, do you you want to know the Father more intimately, to love him well, to feel his love for us? Then give in such a way that giving requires trust. The way I like to do it is this. Whatever you're comfortable giving, give a little more than that. Get uncomfortable, because your comfort zone is a cage keeping you from experiencing the kingdom of God. There's joy in trusting God that way that I never expected. Back when I thought that giving was an obligation, I was totally missing the point. The joy of giving is that you get to be part of something bigger than yourself, bigger than survival. Giving makes you feel alive. Check out 2 Corinthians 8 through 9 sometime. Paul writes about the church in Macedonia, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. (laughs) There's a group of people who get it. Money collecting dust Gets you nothing but a false sense of security. But we can trade that money away wisely for the privilege of being God's hands and feet in this world. Besides, it helps with the next part of the problem. Believing the lie that we own anything. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not up here preaching communism. I do believe in private ownership because I know that everything is privately owned by God. God. As Psalm 24 puts it, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. You ever hear that phrase? Man, that dude is loaded. Guy's got more money than God. <laughs> no. <laughs> all the money is God's. <laughs> We're just stewards, which is a slightly Christianese term, meaning managers of somebody else's stuff. Like the steward of Gondor and Lord of the Rings. Where are my nerds at? You know what I'm talking about. All right. All right. I know my people. So the steward was not the king. He was just a dude whose job it was to use the property of the king well. Unfortunately, he forgot that, got power hungry, went crazy, and set himself on fire. Um, I'd like to think I'm doing a little better than this. Haven't set myself on fire lately. You know, here's hoping that continues. Thank you. (laughs) But we all do go a little crazy, and the result of that craziness is believing that our stuff Is actually ours (laughs) it's not jesus illustrates this through some of his stewardship parables like the the shrewd manager of luke 16 jesse gave a pretty great sermon on that once upon a time the abusive household manager a little further on in luke 12 that might be next week and probably the best example the parable of the talents in matthew 25 in that one the good stewards of the master's money they went out and invested it wisely and they earned more but not for themselves They earn more so that they could give it right back to the Master to accomplish more of His purposes. So it is with us. And, I mean, I'll tell you guys, ever since I started looking at money and property as things I don't own, things that I'm just in charge of using for God's glory, it has gotten way easier to not get attached to them, to not put my trust in them. I mean, the Father handed me some of this stuff already, so why do I think it's too hard for him to give me some more if, in the process of using what I have for him, I run out? Do I think my God is that small? Sometimes though, I do fall into thinking, well, yeah, I mean, it might be good for me to give my stuff away, but, you know, I don't have to, (laughs) danger. So that's the sound of us sliding toward the last part of the problem, which is clutching our rights. You remember the very start of our passage? Man comes to Jesus with this legitimate legal concern about family inheritance. And it's only right that he gets what's his, right? That's justice, isn't it? Yeah, it is his right. And what does Jesus say in response to that? Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. What that tells me is that one kind of greed is exercising our rights to get what's ours. We really like our rights here in America, very fond of them. Some of us talk about the Bill of Rights like it's Holy Scripture, as if the words themselves had some power. And why wouldn't we like them? You know, they make us feel safe from, you know, censorship and corruption and tyranny. They make us feel safe from all sorts of things we don't like. And in the same way, the rights we have from social norms make us feel secure. You know, like, if somebody's a jerk to me, I know the way it is in our society. I don't have to be kind back to them. Certainly don't have to love them after that. That'll make me vulnerable, and I don't have to. If somebody backhands me across one cheek, I can arrest them for assault. I know my rights. And yet, whether it's Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount or Paul writing to the Corinthians or the very concept of forgiveness, God keeps telling us, yeah, you have rights. And yeah, the best thing you can do with them is lay them down. I mean, unpacking why, that's, I mean, that's its own sermon. But one bonus relevant to this, when we lay down our rights, the ones that we trust in and hide behind to keep us safe, we get to find a new and better kind of safety in God's care for us. So that's the problem. Now let's look at the solution. Next slide. Trust in God for everything and store up treasure in heaven. Simple enough, right? Cool. All right, good talk. Thanks, guys. Let's close in prayer. (laughs) No, no, this is not that easy. At least not at first. You know, Bobby McFerrin can sing, Don't Worry, Be Happy. But guess what? For the rest of us, it's a little more complicated than that. 18% of Americans right now have a diagnosable anxiety disorder. And the rest of us, we find something to worry about every single day, whether big, small, or (laughs) usually both. Something I love about Jesus, though, he didn't just bark out orders and then expect us to obey without giving us some clues as to how to do these difficult things he's calling us into. And he does that here, too. We are not lost and clueless victims, unable to change. This is so important to know. Worry is an involuntary product of beliefs and attitudes of the heart, and those are things that we can voluntarily change. Worrying is a knee-jerk response, you know? I can't change that, neither can you. I know this. But we can change the things that cause it. It'll take the help of the Holy Spirit and a lot of work on our side. But it can be done. So let's do the whole Romans 12.2 thing of being transformed by the renewing of our minds so that every time we could worry, instead we get to take another step deeper into the presence of God who takes our fear away. So what's that solution look like in practice? Like in that Yellowstone volcano story, our reactions are shaped by habit. We run to whatever we're used to running to. We change that habit by constantly turning our hearts and minds to the word of God, internalizing what God says about himself and us through scripture. I really can't emphasize this enough. And we get stuck on this sometimes, you know. We think of Bible reading as this chore, this thing that we're supposed to do if we want to be good little Christians. But guys, if you make this part of your everyday life, it's going to change you like it's changing me as I'm doing more of this. And as it does, you're going to find yourself doing impossible things, like not worrying. So let's break it down. How do we do that? First way? Know that God wants to take care of you, that you matter to him, that it's not an obligation. You know that Sunday school song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, For the Bible Tells Me So, that's an ultra-simplistic version of a very real truth spread all through Scripture. You want some systematic theology? (laughs) That song is a very good place to start. Ephesians 3, it talks about how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, that it surpasses knowledge. In Isaiah 43, our father says to his children, Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you walk through the flames, you shall not be consumed because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. And right here in Luke, Jesus says, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Pleased to give you not only the basics of survival, but love, joy, peace, meaning, beauty, things that are way more valuable than cash. He wants that. We also got to remember that God is able to take care of you. I mean, wanting something, they'll do a thing without the power to back it up, right? But God has that power. I love Jesus' choice of words back in verse 26 where he said, this very little thing he calls not starving and staying alive. (laughs) Yeah, it's no big deal. And you know the cool part? (laughs) For him, it's not. Down here on the ground, you know, we get such tunnel vision. We start thinking that little things are so big. But God has a bird's eye view. You know, this is the guy who spoke a word and the universe happened. He remembers that. Do we? And he knows it's a piece of cake to give us daily bread, to multiply fish and loaves, to feed five to 10,000 people with the contents of a little, kid's, a little Jewish kid's lunchbox. That is the God we call Father, the one who both can do that and the one who wants to. Do we trust in that? Or do we believe that in the end, our survival is on us? Family, we can't do both. Procrastination is a little more deadly than usual here, which is why Jesus says the third thing seek first the kingdom. Now, Luke implies the word first, Matthew's version has Jesus saying it outright. So, why do that part first? Well, if you're anywhere near as fearful and selfish as me, then it's because we often think, okay, God, yeah, I'll I'll set my heart on becoming part of your kingdom. Just you know, give me a minute, just let me get rent squared away for, the, for this month first, or, you know, let me get my mortgage sustainable, or, you know, let me just make sure I get that promotion and that raise. I mean, you know i got to put food in the fridge, right? Yeah, he does. That's why he said that one verse before this one. But if you wait to put transformational trust on the top of your list until the things that are on top now get crossed off, it will never happen. And on top of the fact that leaves people in need, it's your loss if you don't. I mean, every time we choose to rely on our own ability to provide instead of God's, we take one more step away from the sort of beautiful life, of love and security that we all want to experience. Those steps add up. Jesus used the parable to draw a link between, on the one hand, an ordinary guy just doing the socially normative thing of reaching for what was his. And on the other hand, a narcissist so obsessed with his own comfort and safety that he didn't care whether his neighbors starved or not when he had the ability to prevent it. We have to pay attention to this. We have to recognize how toxic trust in man-made security really is. Remember, Jesus equated worrying with setting your heart on, the thing that you're worrying about and he did it because, as he also said, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. You'd, you'd think that'd be backward, right? You'd think it'd be what you, uh, whatever you put your heart into, that's what you'll invest your treasure in. But really, it's the opposite. Whatever you treasure, whatever you stockpile, or whatever makes you happy, whatever makes you feel secure, that's what you'll grow to care about and then to become. I know this because I've lived it both ways. For a while, I lived this really fearful life, thinking that I was only safe if I could hide everything, and I became hidden, not really known by much of anybody, certainly not feeling safe in the way that only love can make us feel. Then I treasured romantic passion, and I became all libido and no brain, and it didn't keep me safe when that relationship that I had put so much hope in fell away. Then, living on my own, I decided that I'd be safe if I could just work hard enough, save hard enough, and cut back on giving any of my money away to anybody in need. And I became a man measured in dollars and work shifts. And for a part of my life, I lost what it means to be fully human, to be a child of the kingdom. I mean, thanks be to God, that wasn't the end of the story. Once I realized how trusting in myself was killing me, Jesus led me to my last point, recognizing how good treasure in heaven is and that it starts now. So what does this mean? Sort of a weird phrase, right? What you treasure is what you become, right? So value the sort of things that make you a better person. When we've been in heaven a few years, (laughs) ain't nobody going to be standing around going, well, I sure am glad I spent all that time diversifying my portfolio. (laughs) Nobody. But if you play your cards right, you will be up there saying, I am so glad for the acts of love and resurrection God was able to accomplish in people's lives because I trusted him enough to live with open hands, wallet, and heart. I don't know where you're at specifically. You know, if you haven't taken a whole lot of steps of risky trust yet, then all this talk about how good it is might sound like nonsense to you. To whatever extent I've managed to speak God's words, trust me, it's the most beautiful thing in the world. Scary sometimes, you know, depending on God involves a a fair bit of waiting because he does not do it on my schedule. But this has made my life so much more satisfying. You know, don't wait until the end of your life or the end of your to-do list to, to begin really living. There's an adventure waiting for you and the first step happens when you decide it will. The very next time, you could worry. And instead, you let the good shepherd do what good shepherds do. You'll be taking a step, no matter what. Choose the direction that you step well. We're going to take communion in a few minutes. And while we do, there's going to be a couple of folks back in the prayer cave, including myself. If there's something on your heart, please, let's talk to God together about it. That's part of God's design for the kingdom, that we don't have to struggle through things alone. I want to invite you tonight to look at communion from maybe a different angle than you have before. In John 6, there's five to 10,000 hungry people following Jesus around, right? And Philip, the disciple, he can't fathom how he and the other disciples can possibly meet the basic needs of them all because his trust for provision is in money. Jesus feeds them all without even touching a coin. And after that, he says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. Will we believe his words and put our trust in him? If so, let this be communion. Let this communion be one step of life that shows it. Let's pray real quick. Um, Father, thank you. Thank you so much for building the kingdom, for showing us the only way that we can become fully alive, fully everything we were born to be. God, I want that, and I want that for my friends here. Um, God, may your kingdom come here at Scum of the Earth Church in Denver, in this whole world. God, lead us toward that. And help us to trust in you. We love you. <clears throat> Amen.